Staring out at the horizon, only two colors are visible. An endless baby blue and an impossibly deep navy blue. Two men in their early 20s are trying their best not to freak out now that they are unable to see land from their canoe. They paddle for hours on end with the sun beating down on them and waves constantly rocking them side to side. Fear sets in, nothing but water, deep, dark, uncertain. A few hours later, <laughs> their savior arrives. The Coast Guard comes in a much larger motorboat to save them, scolding them for being stupid enough to try to cross Lake Michigan with no preparation in a canoe. This was one of the many stories of Bob Cassily. He was always a daredevil, never stepping away from the chance to make an unforgettable story, no matter the danger and risk it posed. That's the epitome of Bob Cassily, the man who knows no fear. Tim Tucker, 1997. Hello, I'm Matthew Vanis. I've spent the past few months reading old articles, exploring rabbit holes, and talking to people that were close to Bob. Today I'm going to walk you through the life of Bob Cassily, the City Museum, and Cementland. As a preface, I will not spend much time discussing Bob's divorces or his death. There are plenty of articles and videos covering Bob's death if you'd like to explore that, but I tried to focus on his life and his works, which aren't as covered as his death. With that out of the way, let us begin and explore what Bob meant to St. Louis. Bob Cassidy was born and raised in Webster Groves, attending Chaminade College Preparatory for some years. He later went on to St. John Vianney, where he apprenticed under the local sculptor and professor at Fontbonne University, Rudy Torini. Bob eventually attended Fontbonne University, Fontbonne College at the time, becoming the first male graduate in 1972. During his time at Fontbonne, he grew close to Kurt Nickmeyer, who had become a business partner of his for 30 years met his future wife, Gail Cassidy, and met Cecilia Davidson, who he would marry immediately after graduation. The newly married couple went to Rome to honeymoon, and when they were visiting Michelangelo's Pieta, a man claiming to be Christ attacked it with a geologist's hammer, doing some damage. But Cassidy wrestled him to the ground and prevented any more damage from being done. He received local and international recognition for stopping Laszlo Toth. Upon his return to St. Louis, he bought a house with Cecilia in Lafayette Square because it was cheap and he felt there was a lot of potential in the area. Cassidy went on to open a restaurant nearby, the Park Place Restaurant, which became the first neighborhood hotspot. With the success of their restaurant, the Cassidys ended up moving to Hawaii for a life of leisure away from the Midwest. But soon he grew tired of that life of leisure and returned to St. Louis where he began flipping real estate properties with great success. To quote his close friend Kurt Nickmeyer, Everything he touched turned to gold, whether it was machinery or property. When the Missouri Botanical Garden wanted to expand onto the property that Bob had bought, he sold big. Whether Castley had an eye for potential or was just plain lucky, he quickly amassed a small fortune which he used to begin the Castley & Castley Architectural Casting Company, which focused both on restoration and unique architectural creations. With his success, he was able to sculpt as he desired, but shifted from clay to concrete. He began to receive commissions for his works, a bust of Marlon Perkins in the St. Louis Zoo, 
the locally iconic turtles and snakes that watch over irritating traffic on 64, and a 67 and a half foot tall giraffe in Dallas's zoo, the tallest sculpture in Texas. As he gained notoriety, he made even more sculptures all across the St. Louis area. The musical lion benches in University City, the apple chairs in Webster Groves, both the mysterious monarch and monopillar statues in Chesterfield's Faust Park. In Castley's success, he bought a 726,000 square foot building built in 1909 by Theodore Link, who, the same man who created Union Station. The building was opened in 1910 and then later added on to in 1930, uh, down on Washington Avenue. Castley bought this building for a little over half a million dollars, which used to hold the headquarters of the International Shoe Company. The once magnificent building had become a mushroom farm due to a sprinkler system malfunction that flooded the floor and the doors were rusted shut from the urine of homeless people. This dull, empty, and rotting building would come to be known as the City Museum. Not because the name was generic, but because you can't pin it down. After cleaning the building up a bit, repairing water damage and removing the occasional patch of mushrooms, Castley began to work on his play project with a number of skilled artists. The 500-foot wall surrounding the parking lot was the first installation, which won a Concrete Council Award from the Decorative Concrete Council, a subgroup of the American Society of Concrete Contractors. <laughs> Say that five times fast. Gil Castley said, nobody in their right mind would have spent that much money on a fence, but we wanted people to know that something was going on here. Soon after, in order to acquire grants and help fund the project, Gail, Bob's then wife, helped establish the City Museum as a nonprofit which would require a board of directors and lots of paperwork. Bob left that work largely to Gail and continued his work as he had been doing. The first major installation within the building was installed in 1997, a well that sits on the first floor acting as an accessibility ramp to the second floor and as an entrance to the tunnels underneath. The iconic caves were next up, but they took a different form, only being the original single-floored maze not becoming the multi-floor labyrinth that it is today until 2002. Then one of the most iconic pieces of the city museum was put in place. A school bus from the Roxana School District was lifted and set on the corner of the building, which was said not to exist when Bob was asked about permits. The crane used to hoist the bus on the roof was the first piece in Bob's next great work, Mon Monstro City, or monstrosity, monstro city, whichever you would like to call it. From what I gathered uh, from talking to workers at the city museum, it usually gets abbreviated to monstro. According to a few workers at the city museum that also gave me the clarification on monstro, they said that Bob began his work on monstro because of the divorce that he had been going through at the time with his second wife, Gail. Gail had a restraining order on Bob, so Bob was unable to work inside the building as Gail owned 50% of it. So he began his work outside. After adding everything from the fuselage of a retired FBI plane acquired after a flood to the castle added in 2013, built from stones from a house that stood on 3636 Page Avenue, which was rumored to be haunted. On the museum's fifth birthday, a park of ramps, ropes, and bowls called the Skateless Park was added. Uh, cut here, there will be more to add, but for now we're just going to cut it at that. 
Eventually, the world's largest pencil was added to the museum in 2009, which had set the record in 2007 as the world's largest pencil. Bob purchased the remains of a cement factory at 520 Scranton Avenue on the north side of the riverfront a little before November 1st, November 21st, 2000. As that was the first mention in a St. Louis Post-Dispatch article from that day. There was no other direct mention and no one that I interviewed was able to give me clarification on the exact day that he had bought the cement land. Bob and his crew worked for years on what was dubbed cement land and still had at least 10 more years to go before the product would be finished. Bob's work at Smithland paralleled that of his work at the City Museum, buying a lot of a past age that once had been filled with business, commerce, and chaos, and restoring it to bring new life into the remains of an industry. Bob built a castle that his children often played in, similar to the one in Montreux, and an adjacent cubic castle connected by a large bridge of iron and I-beams suspended 45-something feet in the air. On the ground below the castles, he built a concrete gazebo that stands above a pool of water that has channels stretching out to form moats around the gazebo and the nearby smokestack. Bob envisioned people being able to throw rocks off the top of this 200-foot-tall smokestack, similar to the pumpkin trucking at the City Museum. But while Cementland was still in its infancy, Bob tragically passed away in an accident where his bulldozer rolled over and he suffered fatal head trauma. After Bob's passing, ownership of the land was passed to his widow, Giovanna Cassidy. Numerous small fires happened between 2011 and 2016, but a catastrophic fire laid waste to many of the remaining casts and molds of the late Bob, so security was hired to counteract these destructive trespassers. Since then, security has become less prevalent and close to non-existent. I speculate this has happened because of the financial strains that that would create, but I haven't been able to find anything on it. In the spirit of Bob Castley, people have kept life in the site by creating memories by trespassing and exploring dangerous segments of the property, as Bob probably would have. There are hundred if, hundreds, if not thousands, of unique pieces of graffiti scattered throughout the property, creating a gallery like no other. While Bob is gone, Cementland still takes on some bit of his sense of excitement and adventure that Bob would have hoped it would have. Now, the lot is listed for $3.69 million and is available for purchase from Avison Young. Throughout St. Louis, there are reminders of the childish imagination of a man that passed more than a decade ago that still bring joy and wonder into anyone who lays eyes on them. Bob's legacy lives on in his children and the stories that his co-workers share, whether it be an adapted version of Jack and the Beanstalk or his escapade scaling a building after hours with some rock climbing holds that still remain on the building. To quote Rick Irwin, Bob was like Forrest Gump, always in the right place at the right time. Now it is difficult to be a St. Louis resident and be unaware of his influence, no matter the place or time. Bob demonstrated that, with some luck and a lot of effort, you can create some pretty incredible things that will bring happiness to an unimaginable number of people.
Last month, I had the fortune to go explore cement land. And for pretty obvious legal reasons, um, I do not encourage or support the trespassing on this property. Um, I saw it as a risk to my own personal safety, um, and I didn't see it as influencing anybody else's safety, well-being, anything. Because there was a gap in the fence that seemed to be decently heavily trafficked. So I saw it as a risk I was willing to take to figure out more about this place that had so much mystery around it. No matter where you go on the property, there is a sense of just abandonment. Um, I went now over 10 years after Bob died. So it was overgrown and there's a lot of wastewater, not wastewater, um, runoff water that has been left to sit and is filled with algae, mosquitoes, moss, actually a fair amount of frogs as well. Um, but when it comes to the main cement factory area, there are numerous holes that I began calling coffin drops because they were 40 to 70 feet deep. Um, and if you stepped or if you misplaced your foot and you were unlucky enough to fall through one of them, you're probably going to end up in a coffin. So I highly discourage um, people from exploring this area, but I did. The roof of the cement factory was terrifying because <laughs> there are many, many, many holes um, straight down and about a 130-foot drop that you can actually see through, which is terrifying. Um, you can climb over to a metal portion of the roof where you can see the arch from. I have some footage that I'll link in the description of this podcast where you can see all the footage from Cementland. But <laughs> there's a pretty incredible view just from the top to the arch, which is insane to me. Beyond that, there's numerous other small warehouses, or not small, there's numerous other warehouses that are pretty large, vast, and empty. There's trash littered around the property. I saw a McDonald's toy from Kung Fu Panda, oddly, so that tells you how long that how long ago that was, or how old that is. Um, there are numerous silos that you can explore, and similar to the main cement factory, there's numerous holes that will likely lead to death or injury. Um, the gazebo is still in full contact, or is still fully in contact, the gazebo is still in good shape. Um, there's an interesting piece of graffiti with a milk carton and a tooth on it. Uh, beyond that, the smokestack had a ladder that went up to the top, um, and about halfway up you can find some pieces of graffiti, but the ladder has since been broken so that nobody can climb up. Uh, the area around that is also filled with water um, in the moat that... The area around it, uh, which is the moat, um, is filled with water reeds and other plants that are overgrown, so you can't really get to the smokestack anyways, but you can clearly see that the ladder is broken. Of course, it is illegal to go and explore this place. I saw it as a risk I was willing to take, simply because it did not have much security and it was very interesting. Um, I do not recommend you go explore this place. I, in fact, discourage uh, the exploration of this place. But if you so happen to still go and explore it, please watch your step. 
don't fall in any holes. There's a lot of dangerous, there are many dangerous spots in, on the property, um, so be very careful, and I would recommend wearing a pair of gloves so that you don't get tetanus from all the rust. Also in the description of this podcast, I will leave links to uh, the three interviews I conducted with Rick Irwin, who was the executive director of the City Museum for 15 years and is now the creative director of the City Museum and has been for about two years. Um, I was fortunate enough to get a meeting with him. I connected with him through LinkedIn, oddly, um, and I came dressed as a leprechaun on St. Patrick's Day to have a good talk with him. Um, he is a very interesting guy. He's a father of two children now and I highly recommend listening to the conversation that we had if you are interested in learning more about the City Museum and why it's run the way it is. Next I conducted an well it was more of a conversation. Next I conducted a brief interview um, if you want to call it that I would call it more a conversation with Gail Castley who was very very kind in letting me talk to her. Um, <laughs> she said that uh, I was only able to actually find, or she said that the only reason that she actually responded was because I was a kid, and I will take that happily. Um, many reporters have apparently reached out and not been successful in getting an interview or really talking to her, uh, because obviously when Bob's, when the accident involving Bob occurred, a lot of media attention was kind of around that, especially with. Um, Max, one of their children, um, having a having an encounter with um, some people and uh, being very, very badly wounded. 